Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. I went to go see Million Dollar Baby in February 2005, roughly two months into its general release. I left the theater with disappointment, both because of how the movie expresses its basic story and how I felt I had been misled through how the movie had been marketed. To pull back a step, this is the story of a young woman, Maggie Fitzgerald. That's Hilary Swank. She's a woman boxer from Arkansas who arrives in Los Angeles, is working a hard scrabble life as a waitress, putting together her pennies on tips in order to get the attention of a trainer named Frankie Dunn. That's Clint Eastwood. He runs a gym where she wishes to work out under his tutelage, and he refuses her because she's just a girl. Over time, he's gradually worn down, particularly because of his friend Scrap Iron Dupree, that's Morgan Freeman, who sees something in this young woman's determination to succeed. Frankie looks after Maggie. He trains her. She becomes indeed a great fighter. She knocks out most all of her opponents within the first round. She ends up in a big-money Las Vegas fight where she's sucker-punched, and consequently she's rendered a quadriplegic. The last portion of the movie involves Frankie doting on Maggie, attempting to figure out how to make her post-fighting life possible while she gradually wants assisted suicide. In the end, she gets her wish. He helps her die. Movie over. So, I left the theater thinking, I figured I was going to watch Uplift. I can accept pessimism. I can accept a sad ending, and the movie definitely delivers that. But as I thought of the movie more and more, I realized that it's less than the sum of its very good parts. Having recently rewatched Million Dollar Baby, I can report that mostly the movie hangs on a couple of conventions of screenwriters who know their craft but speak right on the nose. In particular, there is a sequence after Maggie's star has risen far enough that she's earning real prize money where she wishes to go to her old hometown and give her mother an inexpensive home she's purchased outright as a gift to the family. It does not go well. And as she's leaving town, she tells this story to Frankie. You ever own a dog? Nope. Closest I ever came was a middleweight from Barstow. My daddy had a German Shepherd, Axel. Axel's hindquarters were so bad, he had to drag himself room to room by his front legs. Me me and Mardell bust up laughing watching him scoot across the kitchen floor. Daddy, he's so sick by then, he couldn't hardly stand himself. But one morning he got up, carried Axel to his rig, and the two of them went off into the woods singing and howling. But it wasn't until he got home that night alone that I saw the shovel in the back of the truck. Later in the movie, once Maggie has been injured, and after one of her legs is amputated due to infection, she rounds out the narrative. I got a favor to ask you, Bob. Sure. Anything you want. Remember what my daddy did for Axel?
Don't even think about that. I can't be like this, Frankie. Not after what I've done. I've seen the world. There's something tremendously moving about watching Maggie and Frankie work through the issues of mortality. Don't let me lie here till I can't hear those people chanting no more. I can't. Please. Please don't ask me. I'm asking. Eastwood is a fine actor sometimes. Eastwood is a fine filmmaker sometimes. The trouble with his movies across his lengthy career is that sometimes there is an inattention to small roles that don't always add up to the excellence of his overall production. An example of something that irritates me in Million Dollar Baby is a secondary character called Danger, played by Jay Barrokel. He's depicted as being a quasi-retarded young man who was dropped off by a very bad stepfather with absolutely no resources in the mean streets of Los Angeles, who then washes up in the shores of Frankie's gym, and that's where he meets Scrap Iron Dupree, who thinks this young man, while having no potential as a boxer, is nonetheless in need of a sort of parasocial family. I'm cool with that, generally speaking, but the fact is this character doesn't add much to the overall story, but occasional distractions for actors who were then comers, Michael Pena, Anthony Mackie in particular, that show some of their potential chops in secondary roles. It doesn't add much to the movie except lengthen or pad the basic themes the movie's grinding at. Another issue I've got with this movie is that some of the scenes simply last too long. We spend a lot of time watching people go into and out of rooms, and occasionally this doesn't deliver anything new but sustain the overall length of a movie that runs to 132 minutes, credits included. Leaving those issues aside, there are other manipulations that are more complicated for me as somebody who deals with and thinks about some of the philosophical issues the movie's trying to tease apart. We know that Frankie is a lapsed Catholic who has returned to the church, irritating his local parish priest. This priest, Father Horvath, played by Brian F. O'Byrne, finds Frankie irritating, but their daily banter questioning some of the fundamentals of the Catholic faith are interesting, especially if a person has been given through training or exposure to think that aspects of the Catholic Church are a little bit strange or truly mystical in a way that defies rational thinking. As Frankie's journey goes through training Maggie to her eventual injury whereupon she wishes to die, his faith is tested in what he actually values. The greater point is sustained against the fact that Frankie is a bad father. He constantly thinks about and writes letters to a daughter who we never meet, and all of these letters are returned to sender. She's never read them. We don't know exactly what has happened. We know that Maggie's father is dead. We know that Frankie's daughter is in the wind and uninterested in him, and they form this bond that has a romantic overtone in certain scenes, and that's a little queasy and uncomfortable, but we do gather that this is a deep, loving bond between an older man and a younger woman. I got nobody but you, Frankie.
Although I have misgivings about this movie, it is impressive to me that Clint Eastwood is the director, he is the star, he is the composer, and he's the named main producer of the piece through his production company, Malpaso. Further, one of his children, a daughter, plays a very small supporting role. His son helped co-write a few of the songs that we hear, and many of the main crew leads that we can read about in the credits or observe through their work on screen are people he's been laboring alongside, in some cases for more than 50 years. This is therefore a kind of auteur study of how Clint Eastwood is one of the great filmmakers of our time, although great does need to be put in quotes at least to this viewer. Million Dollar Baby is wildly overpraised. It is a conventional story about how a couple of hardscrabble people form a family bond despite not being actually related, and they are riven by tragedy which forces each of them to win out their better self. We know that this is all staged in a very peculiar way, in that the first half of the movie is all training sequence, all about creating the sports narrative, and the second half is a reflection on the consequences of having a life spoiled through injury. That story, the life spoiled through injury, is far richer. However, we know inevitably that Frankie is going to help Maggie because he loves her, and we know that Maggie wants out of this mortal coil because of what has happened to her along the way. Yet, because this movie is also intelligent enough to employ the services of somebody like Morgan Freeman, we do give the man a little bit of scene to chew. Where are your shoes? They're not my feet. You got big holes in your socks. Oh, they're not that big. Didn't I give you money for some new ones? These are my sleeping socks. My feet like a little air at night. How come you're wearing them in the daytime then? Because my daytime socks got too many holes in them. Well, if I give you some more money, you buy some new socks. Please. Well, I'd be tempted, but I couldn't say for sure. Might find its way to the track. My overall impression is that this is a set of vignettes written by Paul Haggis based on the short story collection Rope Burns by F.X. Tool, and these vignettes are sometimes absolutely brilliant. But connecting all of them into a string, sustaining this narrative, gets a bit thin. Example, Maggie's extended family in Arkansas, including a really arch mother who's disrespectful of her daughter and disrespects her daughter's success, is a cartoon cutout. So is the rest of Maggie's family. We realize then that while this movie does privilege three main performers, the fact is it depends upon a whole bunch of secondary performers to sustain the length of its story, and those secondary story players are not always given very much material to work with, aside from very gross and broad caricature. When I experience that in this movie or in earlier movies by Eastwood, I'm always disgusted, because there are great moments overbalanced by poor moments. Still, to many spectators, Million Dollar Baby sticks with them because, in the end, it is the story of love fulfilled. Maggie had a wish to become a great fighter. She achieved it. Bad things happen, but she has accepted that fact. The greater problem is Frankie's. Can he likewise help her leave the mortal coil because her lifeline is done? Of course, he does. 
and we conclude with a sort of sappy wraparound to him having pie in a diner that Maggie once frequented with her father. But here is a final bit of fuzziness. Throughout the piece, we hear a voiceover narration provided by Scrap Iron, who tells us things we need to know about each character and the world they live in, and, importantly, informing us of some of the subtleties of the sport of boxing. We don't know how exactly that folds into the story, but it does act as our conduit into understanding things which are not always clear from what we see on screen. In the end of the movie, we realize what has been going on is that Scrap Iron has been writing a letter to Frankie's daughter in order to defend his friend Frankie to a daughter who will not accept the words of her own father. Therefore, the movie's flipped around by the time it concludes. What we're really looking at is the story of Scrap Iron, our true protagonist, telling us the total story of Frankie and Maggie as a way for him to achieve his culmination of personhood. Most people, I think, disregard that because Morgan Freeman has such a wonderful speaking voice. The point, using voiceover narration, is both a cheap shot to tell an audience things we need to know while manipulating us into accepting the rules of a story world when the story world doesn't otherwise convince us of those rules and those feelings. And that's largely how I feel leaving this movie. I know there are moments where I meant to well up and get teary, and while I can feel some of that burbling inside of my head, it doesn't quite get achieved because I can see through the illusion to the craft that's there to manipulate me, and I find that irritating. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!